Here's a riddle. How can an I be a we? It kind of brings up the olden days, doesn't it? The royal we. We might hear it in old-time movies or TV shows about kings and queens. Queen Victoria saying, we are not amused. In a museum once, I saw an old proclamation by the Tsar of Russia from the 1800s, and it began, we, Alexander III, by the grace of God, Tsar of all the Russias, do proclaim, and so on. And it's very grand, and there's something impressive about it, this idea that a person is so majestic and so important that singular pronoun just isn't enough. But most of us would find it a little laughable for a person to talk that way today. No matter how powerful or important or wealthy, we know a human being is just a human being, whether it's Joe Biden or Jeff Bezos or you or me. Really, a singular pronoun is about enough. But what about God? God, in a few places in the Bible, talks this way, or at least seems to. Whom shall I send, and who will go for us, we have in this reading from Isaiah. And while you can certainly read it in other ways, maybe he's talking on behalf of the angels who are with him, many people through the ages have found little hints of a kind of we in God, not just in this verse, but in others. There's a place in Genesis where God is just about to create human beings. And God says, let us make humankind in our image. And that verse clearly applies to God. It's not the angels who are making humankind. And certainly, if there's anyone entitled to speak this way, it's God. There's anyone who deserves the royal we. But there are also hints in the scriptures and in their interpretation in the centuries since that this is more than just a fancy way of talking. That that occasional unusual plural might tell us something about who God is. Now God is one. That's perhaps the most basic truth in the Hebrew scriptures. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In a world of polytheism, that was a radical truth. And yet, even throughout the Hebrew scriptures, there are hints that this oneness of God might have some complexity to it. We hear in those scriptures about God's word, a kind of personified word, a kind of aspect of God by which God creates and acts and does things in the world. God's living word. And we hear about God's wisdom. A kind of figure portrayed as feminine in gender that we see especially in the book of Proverbs and other places in the scriptures. And wisdom is one with God, yet somehow also distinct. We hear about God's power. We hear, of course, about God's spirit, which is likely to seize people like prophets at inopportune times. And so there is a kind of multiplicity we might read in these scriptures, 
And certainly Christians have always read the Hebrew Scriptures that way. Starting at the very beginning as they tried to grasp the significance of who Jesus was. They reached for those concepts of the Word of God, of the wisdom of God. They started to understand God still as one, and yet one in a way that had some multiplicity in it. They started to talk about God as Trinity. Today is Trinity Sunday. Last week at Pentecost, we celebrated the gift of the Holy Spirit to the newborn church. And so we might be tempted to see a kind of chronological unfolding in the story of salvation that has wrapped up, in a way, last Sunday. And so God, the author and source of all things, the God of Israel, sends Jesus, the Word of God, God the Son, and when his earthly work is complete, we have God the Spirit. And so now with the Spirit in place, we have the whole Trinity, and so let's celebrate that Trinity Sunday. And there's some truth to that idea, but it can also lead us astray. Because Christians don't believe the Trinity is a kind of successive three-act drama, where the Father comes first, and then slips out of the Father costume and into a Son costume, and then doffs the Son costume and puts on a spirit mask. These aren't just three aspects of God or three successive costumes that God puts on. But Christian believe, Christians believe that this one God has been the triune God all along. That all the way back in creation, the Spirit and the Word were intimately involved. That it was Father, Son, and Spirit, Author, Word, and wild presence that first breathed life into all things and that set the people of Israel free from slavery and that inspired the prophets and indeed that brought that word incarnate to earth to love us and liberate us. St. John tells us in one of the most famous verses in Scripture that God is love. And one thing the Trinity means for us is that God truly is love that there is love even within the very heart of God. Love, a lover, a beloved, a community. That God is community as well as unity. That there is a kind of intimate dance of mutual joy among the persons of God throughout all eternity. So we have this hint or this shade of Trinity in this verse from Isaiah. Whom shall I send and who will go for us, says God, this rollicking fellowship of oneness and threeness and infinite glory? And Isaiah, beholding it all, volunteers. It's as if he just can't help it. It's as if this vision of God's glory and love is just so much as to draw him in. He can't help but be drawn in. Probably the most famous of all Russian icons is the icon of the Trinity that was painted in the 1400s by Andrei Rublev. And it's the icon on the front of today's service bulletins. And it shows the Trinity as three angels in a famous story from the book of Genesis. 
God appears to Abraham. And here is another of those odd places in the Old Testament where there's an oscillation, where God sometimes seems to be one angel and sometimes seems to be three angels. And so Christians have always seen this story as a very special image of the Trinity. And we could talk all morning about this icon. The figures, somehow feminine and masculine and both and neither all at once. Their gazes at one another that carry the viewer's own gaze around the circle. There's symbolism in the colors and the landscape features in the background and the chalice on the table and on and on. But today, what I notice about this icon as I think about Isaiah is the perspective. This icon shows us the Holy Three as table mates. And like most Eastern icons, it has a kind of inverted perspective. The parallel lines in this image don't converge into the background in a vanishing point. They converge out toward the viewer in a way that has the effect of drawing you in. And it's as if to say that God the Trinity is engaged in this dance of endless love, but that love doesn't just stay in the picture. It reaches right out to pull you in too. So there's a fourth guest at this table. It's you. Just as Isaiah couldn't help but be drawn in by God's glory, so you and I are invited to be drawn in. Not that we're members of the Trinity, not that they need a fourth, not that we're God, heaven forbid. I don't want that job. But that the love among the Trinity is so powerful and beautiful and alive that it can extend to us too. These beloved creatures, these beautiful creatures that God has made, we were made to join in that relationship. And Scripture does say, after all, that we are made in God's image. Let us make humankind in our image. So that means that we have something that is like the nature of God. So if God is both individual and community, if God is about relationship, then that probably means so are we. This past year, we have seen in unforgettable ways just how connected we are to one another for better and for worse. We have locked down and stayed home to flatten a curve for the common good. We have worn masks to protect partially ourselves, but mostly each other. We've done things not out of concern just for ourselves as individuals, but because we know we're bound to each other. And we've also seen this year how wounded our connections to each other are. We've seen the inequality in the pandemic as some have been able to stay home and work from home and even take up new hobbies with newly found time while others have been working so that others might survive. We've seen in new ways how black and brown folks and their white allies have taken up the cause of working for the liberation of everyone which is the liberation of white people also, because when anyone is cut out of community, everyone is made less. We've seen an insistence on claiming the full image of God in all humanity, 
And we've seen just how far we have to go for that to be reality. So this year, and really every year for us, the Trinity isn't just an abstract doctrine. For us as Christians, the Trinity is the beating heart of our connectedness to God and to one another. As Trinitarians, we can never say, forget about you. I am me, I stand alone, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. Because even to be a self is to be a self in relationship. And at the same time, the Trinity tells us that the individual person has infinite value. And it also stands against any kind of collectivism that would flatten out that value of every individual. In the Trinity, there's no contradiction between individual flourishing and community flourishing. Each person of the Trinity is holy themselves and holy God in relation to the others. And each of you, each of us, is made in the image of that God. That God made a world where we are all most fully ourselves when we are most fully connected to each other. And today we are gathering at their table. Here at this table, we also are invited to be table mates with the Holy Three. And then afterwards, after this meal, we get sent, sent into the world to love and serve in the name of Christ. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? The Trinity is asking. What will you answer? You've already given your answer if you've been baptized. Just as we renew our baptismal covenant, as we did at Pentecost last week, every time again we speak those words, I will with God's help. I will with God's help.